0: Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Welcome back to another episode of Disastrous History. This week we're going to travel up north, well, north of me, to the great country of Canada. And before I get into this, I just want to say that this disaster takes place in Quebec, and I am from the Midwest, and French words slash French names do not do so well with my midwestern accent. I will do my best, but if I mispronounce things, I promise you it's not on purpose. I did look them up, and I am trying my best. So, with that said, we're going to cover another railroad disaster, the lac Rail Disaster. This is going to be a bit different than our previous rail disaster, the Big Bayou Cannot Disaster, in one major way. This train was not a passenger train. In fact, no one was on it at the time of the derailment. But we will get into all that. So, the Lac-Mégantic rail disaster takes place in the town of Lac-Mégantic. Lac-Mégantic is a small town in the southeastern part of Quebec, Canada. With a population of just about 6,000 people, there's not much exciting about the town. As with a lot of towns in Quebec, most of the residents speak primarily French. The town was founded in 1884 after the Canadian Pacific Railway started to finish the transcontinental railway it had built and the town built around the railroad. The town is named after nearby Lake magontic which may come from a word in the Abenaki language, which means place where there is trout, because there is trout in Lake magontic It's a sleepy area, but it wouldn't have to wait long for the first drama in Lake Magantic. And this story is super interesting, so I'm going to tell it real quick, because I love a good gunfight. The first mayor of Loch was a man by the name of Malcolm Macaulay. Macaulay was by far the richest guy in town, and he had a, had a habit of swindling people out of things to earn more money. Which enters the Morrison family. They were immigrants to the area from Scotland, and had purchased a farm they were running in order to make money. Purchasing the farm had predictably put the Morrison family into debt, and that debt was to none other than Malcolm Macaulay, the richest guy in town, the only guy that could afford to sell a farm at a loss. In order to work off that debt, the son of the Morrisons, Donald Morrison, traveled out to the western United States and Canada, where he worked as a cowboy, occasionally sending money home to help his parents, Sophie and Murdo Morrison. Unfortunately... The Morrisons were illiterate, and so were unable to read the contract they signed. Macaulay then auctioned off the farm to a different family. So, when Donald returned to find his family farm essentially stolen, he became enraged, hired a lawyer, and tried to get the farm back. When that didn't work, he began to harass the new owners of the farm. And then, so that was about 1886-1887. At some point in about 1888, a barn on the farm burned to the ground. The cause of that fire is unknown, but, uh, come on, everyone knew they were going to blame Donald Morrison, which it's very likely he did, considering he was continuously harassing the family on the farm. They charged him with arson and put out a warrant for his arrest. They hired a special constable, which is basically a part-time cop, by the name of Jack Warren to capture Morrison. A manhunt then ensued. Eventually, Warren would challenge Morrison to a duel in downtown Loch Megantic, which was known just as McGantic at the time, and Morrison would win the duel, shooting and killing Jack Warren. He would, of course, then be charged with manslaughter on top of the arson charges. Morrison would be on the run for the law for about 10 months before being ambushed, shot, and convicted of manslaughter. He was sentenced to 18 years hard labor, but eventually contracted tuberculosis. He would die within hours of being released from prison on compassionate grounds. That was Allegedly the longest manhunt in Canadian history, in terms of time period, not distance. Distance belongs to Albert Johnson, the mad trapper of Rat River, who basically was on the run for 48 days and traveled some 240 kilometers in negative 40 degrees Celsius temperature. It is an insane story, full of some wild twists and turns, and if you haven't heard it, I would go look it up right now because it is massively interesting. I may do an episode on the fu- on it in the future, because it is an absolute disaster, and it is just fascinating. But that's not what we're talking about here. Basically, the Wild West duel in the middle of Loch Lachmagantik, followed by a 10-month manhunt, is the most exciting thing to happen in Loch Lachmagantik until July 6, 2013. And I use the term exciting very loosely. So, that kind of brings us up to the time of the disaster. There wasn't really much going on in this town. It's just a normal small town in Quebec, Canada. So before we get there, we need to talk about late June of 2013, because the disaster happened on July 6, 2013. We need to go back in time a little bit to June of 2013. And in And around June 28th or June 29th, the Montreal Main and Atlantic Railway freight train MMA-002, which I'm just going to call freight train number two from now on because otherwise it's a mouthful, was picked up in Newtown, North Dakota by the Canadian Pacific Railway. The train consisted of 78 tank cars loaded with crude oil. The final destination of the freight train number two was St. John, New Brunswick. The first issue was just 125 miles east of Newtown in Harvey, North Dakota. One of the 78 tank cars was removed due to a defect with the brakes so we're down to 77 tank cars the train continued on its path eastward towards st john and crossed from the united states into toronto canada on july 4, 2013. the train left toronto destined for montreal with 120 cars the extra 43 were mixed freight cars they arrived in montreal on july 5th there it went through another round of safety testing and mechanical inspections And inspectors discovered five more tank cars that had issues, and they were moved as well. The other mixed freight cars were also disconnected as they had arrived at their destination. So for the entire rest of the trip, the freight train would consist of the following cars front to back. The lead locomotive, a caboose, four more locomotives, an empty freight car as a buffer, and 72 tank cars full of crude oil. When the train left Montreal, it was about 4,700 feet long. It weighed about 10,290 tons, or about 20 million pounds, and was carrying about 2 million gallons of crude oil. There was a final safety test performed on the morning of July 5, 2013, that found two issues on two more cars, but they were able to be fixed. It then traveled along to Farnham, where it was picked up by the engineer who would be in command of the train, Tom Harding. Harding had been a locomotive engineer for 27 years in July of 2013. He was a seasoned engineer and had done the trip through the area about 60 times in the year preceding the disaster. About 20 of those had been single-person trips like this one was. He was the only person on the train. He was the only one in charge. So this eastbound train, full of 72 tank cars, full of crude oil, was being piloted by one single man. If something happened to that man, there was nothing to stop this train. If that man became incapacitated in any way, it was hope the train stops before it derails. And I mean, it's not like there's much for a train to go wrong. It's got to stay on the rails, otherwise it won't go anywhere else. It's pretty self-explanatory how a train works, so really shouldn't take more than one person for it to get to where it's going. But we wouldn't be talking about it if that was the case. So Tom was in the lead locomotive and began to have some mechanical issues. For some reason, the locomotive was losing speed and he couldn't keep it maintained. He radioed back and forth with rail traffic control, letting them know that he had issues and the throttle wasn't working properly. At about 10.50 p.m., he decided it was time to stop for the night and go to a hotel to sleep, and then he would rejoin the train in the morning to continue on with its path. Now, there are three different sets of brakes on a freight train. There are the automatic air brakes, which were used basically to slow down the train to bring it to a full stop, as those brakes apply the brakes to not only the locomotives, but the rail cars as well. And then there's a second set of air brakes called the independent air brakes, These are also applied, and these are basically parking brakes like in a car. So, the way these work is the opposite of how it works in a semi, essentially. In a semi, when you apply the air brakes, air is taken out of the system, which then applies the brake pads to the rotors to slow down the semi. On a train, it's the opposite. When you apply the air brakes, air is pumped into the system, which then puts pressure on the brake cylinders, which then applies to the wheels to stop the train. Both of these systems require the locomotive to be on in order to maintain the air in the system to keep the brakes applied. There's also a third set of brakes called handbrakes. You'll recognize these from cartoons like Bugs Bunny and Looney Tunes and other places as the ones where they're on the runaway train turning the wheel as fast as they can to try and get the train to stop before it goes off the cliff and falls and explodes in the big dramatic explosion as soon as it hits the ground. Those are handbrakes. Those are on every locomotive and every rail car. They apply brake pads to the wheels mechanically rather than through air. So the system does not have to be on in order for the brakes to continue to work. So he applied the automatic air brakes to stop the train, then applied the in- independent air brakes to act as a parking brake for the locomotive. He then went through and applied a couple handbrakes to the locomotives and then also to at least two of the rail cars. And then he turned off four of the five locomotives. After he applied all these brakes and went back and twisted all the hand brakes that he applied, he then traveled back to the lead locomotive where he turned off the automatic air brakes, the ones that were used to stop the train, but left the independent air brakes on the parking brake. He then called Rail Traffic Control and asked them to send him a taxi to take to a hotel, where he was going to stay for the night. While talking to the Rail Traffic Controller, he noted that black and white smoke was now emitting from the smokestack on the lead locomotive. He thought that the issue would fix itself on its own, and the rail traffic controller agreed that they could wait till the morning to see if anything needed to be changed. So, they just left it. This has been widely regarded as a poor choice. But, that was the choice they made. So, they called a taxi, and the taxi driver, Andre Turcot arrived to pick up Harding and take him to a hotel for the night at about 11.30 p.m., While sitting beside the locomotive waiting for Harding to get in, Andre noticed that black smoke was billowing from the smokestack and so much oil was spraying out that it was getting on the windshield of the taxi. Noting this to Harding, he was told that it wasn't a big deal and they would deal with it in the morning, and that it was normal to leave the locomotive idling overnight on this stretch of track as he had done it before. Andre also asked about the environmental impact of spraying oil all over the ground around the area where they were sitting, and Harding replied that they never got in trouble because somebody was brothers with somebody on the government, so they would never get called on or anything like that, which is not super shocking in rail industry. So the taxi driver then drove away and took Harding to his hotel. Not even 10 minutes after they left the area of the locomotive, an emergency call was placed at 1140 to report a fire at a locomotive in not. Yes, that locomotive. In order to put out the fire, the fire department cut off the fuel to remove the fire's fuel source, and that put out the fire. They also flipped all the breakers inside the locomotive to off to prevent any additional ignition sources. This was standard operating procedure for the railway, and for the fire department. fire department then ma- marked back in service and everyone went back home. There's one thing they didn't fully think through though. Remember how I said earlier that you need the locomotive to be on in order to maintain the air in the brake cylinder to keep the brakes applying pressure to prevent it from moving? With the power off to the locomotive, nothing was maintaining the air in the air brakes. This meant that all the force keeping the entire 20 million pound train in place was essentially slowly being leaked out despite those seven handbrakes. And those seven handbrakes would not be enough to keep this train in place. Now in theory, those seven handbrakes should help keep the train somewhat in place and it shouldn't super matter that the air brakes aren't working. Except for one teensy-weensy problem. You see, the spot where the train was parked was on a slope. A downward slope. It wasn't much if you look at it in a vacuum, only about 0.92%, which is just about one degree. But for railroad purposes, that's almost a heavy-grade slope. And it was enough to start the train rolling down the hill rolling down the hill with no one in it to stop it. It was 1 a.m. in Megantic. Some of the town was asleep. Parts of it were awake. I mean, it was 1 a.m. on a Saturday morning, so some of it's going to be awake. It's a Saturday in July. People are out partying and celebrating in bars and generally enjoying the summer air. One place that was definitely awake was the local bar, music Cafe. It was a busy Friday night into Saturday. They had live music that night by Von Ricard and Guy Bolduch. I'm very sorry if I did not pronounce their names correctly. The bar was a pleasant place to be, and about 80 people were inside enjoying good drinks, good company, and good music. It was a perfect summer evening to have fun with friends and forget about the cares of the world for just a few hours. Just have a night out where you don't have to worry about anything, Just make sure your glass is always full and the conversation is always good. The LaFontaine family was at Music Cafe. They'd been celebrating their sister's birthday and had decided to finish the evening at the bar. At the bar that night was Christian LaFontaine, his wife Melanie, his brother's wife Corinne, his brother Gaetan, Gaetan's wife Joni Tremel. Not long after 1 a.m., they all got up to pay their tab and head home. It was getting late. The brothers had had to work late at their excavation company, and they were tired. So it was pretty much time to pay the tab and go home. Christian, Melanie, and Gaetan were standing by the end of the bar, away from the front door. Joni had gone into the bathroom for one last break before the drive home. Just for good measure. Nothing worse than having to go to the bathroom desperately on a car ride. All of a sudden, Christian felt a weird vibration. He looked at Melanie and asked if she felt that. She said yeah, but was cut off by a second, significantly more violent vibration. They had no idea what was happening, but whatever it was, being in that building at that point was probably not in their best interest. Christian looked at Gaetan, and Gaetan looked at the bathroom. and Christian immediately understood that his brother was not going to leave without his wife. So he grabbed Melanie, and they took off for the front door. That was the last time he would see Gaetan alive again. As they were headed to the front door, Christian and Melody ran into another friend, Marie Noel. She was a secretary at their company, and they told her they were getting out because they had no idea what was happening, but they knew they didn't want to be in that building anymore. No sooner had they said that, the power cut out. Everything went dark, absolutely pitch black dark. And then, out of seemingly nowhere, the entire bar lit up bright orange through the windows at the front of the bar, Melanie tried to hide, but Christian pulled her back out. He knew they had to get out of there. They made it onto the street and started to head towards their car parked across the street. But Christian looked down the road and saw a wave of fire headed right at them. Which, if you think about it, doesn't really make sense. Roads don't burn. Why was the road burning? It wasn't headed towards them through the buildings. It was headed towards them stretching the entire width of the road. But there was no time to think about that. They had to get out, and they had to get out now. He grabbed Melanie by the hand, and they ran down the street. Melanie briefly tried to fight him. She wanted to get the money out of their car. But by this point, their car was sitting under a burning puddle of crude oil. Both of them would make it out of disaster without injury. Their brother and his wife would not. The musicians for the evening, Yvonne Ricard and Guy Bulldock, played until right around 1 a.m., then decided it was time to take a break. Yvonne was absolutely soaked in sweat, and he really wanted to change his shirt because it's the middle of July and nobody likes wearing sweaty clothes. Guy went to the bar and ordered a beer. Yvonne decided he was going to go outside for a smoke while they got ready to finish up their set for the evening. Outside, he ran into one of the waitresses on her break. They were just chatting about how much fun they were going to have the next day, which was a Saturday in July, and there's a lake nearby, so may as well go out on the lake and have some fun swimming around with friends. Mid-conversation, they were cut off by the railroad crossing, dinging loudly. The next thing he saw was the train cars launching off the track one by one and exploding. He stood awestruck for a minute. Everything was so happy and joyful just a few seconds before. It was a good night. They'd played good music. They'd had fun. They'd had good drinks and generally were just having a great time. One of those times, one of those evenings that you remember when you're older and you look back and you can see all the smiling faces and you can hear the good music and you can taste the good beer. Just having one of those memories. And then all of a sudden... There's a giant mushroom cloud, a fireball, and everything in sight is burning. Once the heat hit him, he snapped out of his daze. Realizing standing where he was was a really bad place to be, he took off running. He didn't stop running until he couldn't feel the heat anymore, which is generally a good plan in most disaster situations. If you see a lot of fire, run in the opposite way until you can no longer feel the heat. You're either away from the fire, or you're dead, I guess. Either way, you're not suffering anymore. There, once he stopped feeling the heat, he turned around to take stock of the situation. What he saw was an absolute nightmare. Half the town was on fire. Everything everywhere was exploding and burning. More and more crude oil-filled tankers were being pulled into the inferno he would turn and run all the way back to where his family was at his in-law's house. Gaetan and Joni never made it out of the bar, but in some kind of, I guess, good news, their bodies were found together in the back of the bar, which means they were able to at least find each other before the end, and they would go out together as husband and wife. Guy Bulldog would never make it out of the bar alive. Once the train started rolling downhill seven miles away and not, there was nothing anyone could have done to stop it. It weighed too much and had too much momentum. The train covered the seven miles in about 15 minutes and hit a top speed of 65 miles per hour. The derailment happened right in the middle of downtown Megantic. Right next to the Music Cafe, there is a turnout. The turnout is where trains switch which track they're on. This turnout is on a curve. The absolute max speed a train should take this particular curve and turnout is 15 miles per hour. The train was going 65 miles per hour when it went into that curve. It stood absolutely no chance. The locomotives did manage to make it through the curve without flying off the rails, most likely because their center of gravity sits closer to the ground. The buffer car would also make it around the curve. So would the next five tanker cars. Sort of. The derailment technically occurred at the sixth tank car. It hopped the track and took the previous five tank cars and the buffer car with it. The locomotives would travel through the town undisturbed and come to rest about three-quarters of a mile through the rest of Loch Magantik, sitting upright and still on the rails. In fact, at one point during the response to the fire, The locomotives began to roll backwards, back towards the fire, before coming to rest on their own before anyone had to deal with them. Now, the reason that the locomotives were able to make it through the curve at such a high speed and the tank cars were not, the locomotive's center of gravity sits closer to the ground, which means you need more force up top to make it derail. With the tank cars, you have a liquid inside them, and their center of gravity is significantly higher and there is a decent chance that that center of gravity switches as the liquid moves around inside that tank car. So when it started to go around that curve at such a high rate of speed, the center of gravity was pushed upward as the forces pushed it outwards around the curve, which helped to derail the tank cars. As the cars derailed, they ruptured open, bursting into flames and cindering hundreds of thousands of gallons of crude oil rushing through the streets and surrounding area of Lachmagantik. Train car after train car after train car smashed into the one before it, creating an accordion of fire. Each train car collision accompanied another explosion. As the fire burned and found more oil that hadn't burned, there were even more explosions. The flames were reported to be over three stories tall. When Melanie and Christian saw that orange glow light up the bar they were in, it wasn't from the flames being in front of them. That was from the flames being so high and so large behind the building that it was reflecting off of the buildings on the opposite side of where they were and lighting up the whole area. That's how big this fire was. People were screaming in terror and trying to run for their lives. But the wave of fire traveled faster than some people could run. Because it, this wasn't just a derailment in fire. This was also a flood. Just a flood of fire. It spread everywhere the liquid could get, and anything that the liquid touched that could burn did so. It went down into the sewers and came back up, shooting flames out of manholes and sewer drains. Basically, every building around the derailment site was on fire. It would take 150 firefighters the majority of two entire days to fully extinguish the fire. They were able to contain the fire from spreading by the afternoon of July 6th, but actual extinguishment took significantly longer. In total, 47 people would die in the blaze. Five of those victims' bodies were never found, presumably burned beyond any recovery in the ensuing explosion outside Musy Cafe. At least 30 buildings were completely destroyed, with many more than that being burned and completely inaccessible. Many of the local hospitals activated protocols expecting a large number of trauma and burn patients, but they received absolutely none. Anyone who was burned died. There was no surviving if he were caught in the path. MMA engineer Tom Harding was woken up by the explosion in his hotel. He headed out the front door and was immediately greeted with a burning town. He quickly realized that it was his train, that had derailed in the center of town and was currently burning most of the town to the ground. To his credit, Harding ran immediately to the crash site and tried to help with whatever he could. He ended up helping some neighboring workers and a firefighter decouple the last nine tank cars that hadn't exploded yet and push them away from the fire, keeping them from exploding. Harding and members of the LaFontaine family would then spend the rest of the evening putting gravel around sewers and generally going around town trying to help prevent the oil from spreading further than it already had, and doing whatever they could to help whoever they could, and to help the fire department stop this fire from burning down more of the town. So with that, let's get into the cause. And for that, we need to go back even earlier. In October of 2012, so eight-ish months before the derailment, The lead locomotive for this freight train went into the shop. It had had an engine failure. It was leaking oil, which is probably the most important part of the locomotive, since the entire point is to pull things and you need an engine to pull things. They needed to fix it, except, well, the locomotive isn't pulling freight if it's in the shop, getting repaired, and if it isn't pulling freight, it isn't making money, and it needs to be repaired, it's costing money, and a whole engine replacement is expensive, and this is capitalism, so we definitely can't have that. But it also wouldn't run without some sort of repair, so they did the truly capitalism thing and replaced it with the cheapest material possible to get it back into service as quickly as possible. Predictably, this fixed the problem briefly, and not even that briefly. Oil continued to leak over the next several months. People would complain that the train had throttle problems the entire time from the moment it was, quote-unquote, fixed to the moment it derailed in Lakhbogontik. Oil continued to leak over and over and over again and would eventually ignite, most likely on a hot surface, on the night of July 5, 2013. That's what started our first fire. Oil on a hot surface igniting. Typical company refusing to do proper repairs because they cost too much money and therefore causing a bigger problem down the road. And that is the cause of this disaster. They fixed that one thing, that one failure, this entire incident doesn't happen. But they didn't. They went the absolutely cheapest route possible filled the leaking hole with epoxy, which was never going to hold up well, and caused a fire that then caused the train to run away, which then killed 47 people. But we all know that that single failure point isn't the only thing that led to a disaster like this, because it's never just one single failure point. That was the first failure point, and if they had fixed that, then none of this would have happened. But it's always a sequence of events where someone did something or someone did not do something that leads to disasters like this. And we have that here. Of course, we have the fact that the train was parked on a downward slope, which technically shouldn't be a problem if the proper brakes are applied, but probably should be avoided if at all possible. Also, it's Probable that trains pulling 72 cars of crude oil with 2 million gallons of crude oil in them should not be run by a single guy who then leaves the train unlocked, running, and unguarded overnight next to a public road. That should probably not happen. That didn't really cause a problem in this situation because the train wasn't stolen, but still. Probably shouldn't do that. The main issue here is they didn't use enough handbrakes on the train. Handbrakes, like I said earlier, don't use air pressure to hold the train in place, they use a the mechanical force of actually turning the wheel to screw the brake pads down onto the wheels. Like I said earlier, you'll recognize them from old cartoons and TV shows where there's a runaway train and Bugs Bunny or whoever is frantically twisting the train wheel trying to get it to stop and then it goes off the cliff and they're stuck suspended in midair holding the wheel in their hands that they were just trying to turn. That's a handbrake. That night, Tom Harding only set seven handbrakes. Testing had shown that Tom Harding needed to set at least 17 handbrakes. But as many as 26 handbrakes in order to hold the train in place successfully. The discrepancy is based upon how tight the person turning the handbrakes can apply the force. So if someone can put a lot of force behind it they only need 17 but if they can't they need 26. It's probably better to have 26 than 17 because generally for safety you want to do more than is necessary. But either way, you'll note that this is way more than the seven that were actually hand-cranked by the engineer that night. And, on top of all that, he didn't crank them as hard as he possibly could have, as several of them were found to be fairly loose still. But, the fault doesn't just lie with the engineer who didn't crank enough handbrakes. He was also failed by MMA. That's Montreal, Maine, and Atlantic Railway, if you don't remember from earlier. They did not have adequate training or procedures in place to give employees the proper knowledge or instruction to secure the trains. Seven handbrakes was basically what they needed to what they said they needed in order to secure the train. There wasn't any policy on setting more than that or any percentage amount of the train needed to successfully hold the train in place. It was whatever the engineer felt comfortable with. So he felt comfortable with seven. So that's what he did. They also didn't have any written instructions for the fire department on what to do if they had to shut off the locomotive that was running, which they did, because if the locomotive hadn't caught on fire, then they wouldn't have shut the locomotive off, which then wouldn't have released all the air from the air brakes, which would have prevented this from happening in the first place. So the fact that they had no guidelines on how many handbrakes to set and they had no guidelines for emergency responders on what to do if they had to turn the locomotive off that was idling with no engineer in it, is a major contributing factor to why this disaster happened. MMA holds just as much responsibility for this as Tom Harding does, and arguably Harding doesn't really own that much responsibility. He did what he was supposed to do, He probably should have actually done more and actually had done something about the leaking oil from the train that night rather than deciding to wait for it in the morning. But the train had made it this long with leaking oil and issues, maintenance issues that weren't being taken care of. It's not it wouldn't have been shocking for it to still be there in the morning. He had left it running with the air brakes on it shouldn't have gone anywhere. This was a case of an employee taking the fall for a company when the company was the one that set that employee up for failure. Eventually, three MMA employees were charged with 47 counts of criminal negligence causing death. All three would be acquitted with all 47 counts of criminal negligence causing death. Tom Harding would plead guilty to violating the Railway Safety Act and had to complete 240 hours of community service. He has shown deep regret and remorse for the role he played in this disaster, even though it was his company that really failed him. The environmental impact of this disaster was huge. Oil-contaminated water was pumped out of Lake Megontek for months and years afterwards. Oil was still seen floating on the surface of the Chaudier River as late as 2018, A report is set to be released in 2022 showing the impact of the Megantic disaster on the Chaudière River in the years after the disaster. It has been shown that many fish in the river have had fin erosion, which is typical for oil spills in water. The oil spill also impacted several acres worth of land around Lachmagantik, but fortunately it did not make it down to the water table. In the aftermath of the disaster, the Montreal, Maine, and Atlantic Railway declared bankruptcy and was bought and reorganized into the Central, Maine, and Quebec Railway. In May of 2021, in an effort to avoid any such disaster occurring again within Lac-Megantic, the Canadian government and the Canadian Pacific Railway Company signed an agreement for a new rail line to travel around Lac-Megantic rather than through it. A memorial now stands at the site of the Musy Café. It consists of granite benches with 48 silhouettes on them, 47 for those who died in the tragedy, and a 48th for the town, the friends, the family, and the visitors who come to see the site of where all those people lost their lives. In the years since the tragedy, the town has made sure that no trains travel through Megantic on July 6th. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Disastrous History, spelled disastrous correctly with H-S-T-R-Y, so Disastrous History, history with no vowels. Follow me on Instagram, Disastrous History, spelled correctly, and you can follow me on TikTok, Disastrous History, where I do videos covering smaller disasters that may not make it into episodes, and some other stuff like some Hurricane Ida coverage and stuff like that. So... If you want to let me know how I'm doing, you can send me an email at history at gmail.com. And also, remember to review, leave a star rating, whatever, on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or wherever. Just let me know how I'm doing, if you want any changes, anything like that. If you want me to cover a disaster, send me an email, shoot me a message, do whatever, and I'll do my best. As always, stay safe, and remember to check your smoke detector batteries.